Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Dr. Eric Fitzmedred is a culturally aware clinician, trainer, speaker, podcast guest, author, and a licensed psychologist. He specializes in evidence-based practices that include sex-positive wisdom and celebrating the joys of pleasure. Eric's new book is The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Better Sex. We need to know more. He knows he is one of my faves, and now you get to find out why as we welcome Eric to CTN. So, Eric, you know, by now you know you're one of my favorite colleagues and one of my favorite people, so it's quite the joy to have you on the show, and I'm going to try not to gush throughout and attain an appropriate interview style. So thank you so much and welcome to Change the Narrative. Thank you for having me. And of course, as always, it's a mutual feeling of admiration. I love it. Mutual admiration society. That's what we belong to. All right. You know, I want to start with, you know, the audience learning a little something about you. And I find the best way to do that is to ask a question about history, your history, that is. So tell us one thing that is all we need to know in your history that would give us a kind of a theme or an idea of who you are. All right. At the end of fifth grade, my family was thrown apart. My mom and I had moved up to northern Minnesota, and the man that she moved up there with left when she turned up pregnant. A bunch of people from her life came and brought us back down to Minneapolis. And I landed sixth grade with my teacher, Ernest B. Coleman. The B stood for bad, he would tell us. And I had closed down emotionally. I had shut off. We were in poverty that year, at least. Probably extended for a couple of years beyond that. But he became a mentor of mine who tried to help me bring my gifts to the world. And I've been trying to live up to the love and care he gave me ever since. That tells it all. That's a perfect story, piece of a story. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, we have a lot to cover here. So I want to start by talking about your clinical practice. So you identify specialties such as couples, individuals with relationship or sexual issues. You work with open relationships, desires, differences, kink, P-E-E-D, men's issues, anxiety, depression, OCD, and ADHD, which includes a broad range of cultural, sexual, religious, and spiritual identities. So now, tell me how you ended up with that focus, and what do they have to do with each other? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the I was cutting my teeth as a therapist in an internship, I was primarily working out of a substance abuse treatment clinic. I liked that work, but then I started working at the sliding scale clinic at Catholic Charities of Santa Clara County. And in that, one of my first clients out of the sliding scale clinic was a couple that came in. And it was my first couple ever. You know, I was terrified, excited, and I helped them in a few sessions work out some issues around money. 
And at the end of that, I said, hey, is there anything else I can do to help you? And they kind of looked at each other with this side, you know, look. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to talk about sex. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it took two sessions, but I'll never forget the feeling of bringing them down the hallway back to my office after I gave them some concrete tools. And they were smiling and laughing with each other. And they sat down and they looked at each other, but this time with a big smile and they both just laughed. And I knew that I had helped them find some joy, not just removed pain, but built connection. And so that's when sexuality became a focus of mine. And I love it because it's this canary in the coal mine. You know, if there isn't a heart connection, if there isn't an ability to regulate conflict, if there isn't, you know, a lot of other capacity for relationship and self-soothing, then showing up vibrantly and energetically sexually becomes impossible. And so that's why I love working with it. Most of the time, we don't even end up working with the concrete sexual stuff. We end up working with the stuff around it. But it's really rich. And that's what ties all of those things together. Some people who have depression have sexual issues. People with anxiety can be anxious about sex. People with OCD can get lots of different thoughts about sex. ADHD has its own way of showing up in relationship and sexually. So, you know, that's kind of the thread that unites all of my work is relationships and sex. I really appreciate how you tied that together. It totally makes sense. All right. So, Eric, I want to ask you something since you mentioned, since I mentioned that you work with open relationships. What do you think the biggest misconception is about open relationships or polyamory? It kind of depends on where people are. If they've never heard of it, the biggest one is that it's just cheating. If they are familiar with it and have heard about it, then probably the biggest misconception is that it's all about sex and that people are having sex all the time or with all of their partners. And, and what is the truth? The truth is that it varies a lot under polyamory. The emphasis is really about love and connection, attachment, and that can show up in a lot of different ways, sometimes with sex, sometimes not. People are pretty rigid about it um, in terms of trying to understand, particularly I find clinicians who have not worked with anyone who's in an open relationship. People can get real judgmental. And I do think it has to do with the misconception of what it is and what it is in both the open relationship and polyamory. Now, how would you draw a distinction if there is one? Well, open, I think of open relationship as the larger umbrella. Polyamory is one type of open relationship in, underneath okay. that. So there's also swinging. There's, you know, not necessarily that I'm sanctioning it, but don't ask, don't tell relationships where people know that their partner's doing other things with other people, but they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to see it. And they don't want anybody else in their lives to find out about it. Okay. And there is kink, um, which can show up as one manifestation. Sometimes kink includes sex and sometimes it doesn't. Now, would down low go under the umbrella when people are down low? Depends on how somebody's doing down low, right? Okay. Right? Sometimes a person on the down low could be doing that in an ethical way where their partner knows, um, hey, you know, when I go away, sometimes I'm on the down low. And they could be doing that in a non-consensual way where they're on the down low, but even their partner doesn't know they're down on the down low from everybody. Man, there's so many different levels and ways to try to understand. And 
I always want to try to be as educated as I can without, you know, with realizing all the things that I don't know yeah. and not be afraid to ask, but always want to make sure it's curious and not judgmental. Uh, you know, look, you've been a, a clinician for a very long time. What makes you a better clinician now than you were over the years? And, and, and it's more than experience. So that's what I, I want to focus on. Yeah. Uh, I think there are, I hope there are a number of things. One of those is I make a lot fewer assumptions anymore. When I see somebody have a physical change in their body during a session in reaction to a partner, even if I look at that, I'm like, I know what happened there. I check that and I know I don't know what happened there. And so I ask so much more, what happened? What's going on? How did that feel? What's going on for you right now? And I am just finding that the more careful I get about taking my templates or even my experience and trying to stamp it onto assuming or interpreting, the more in tune I get to stay with somebody. Even if I say, I think something just happened for you, is it this? It's so much more skillful than just saying, oh, well, this is going on for you. Yeah. You know, when you're a, a clinician and I'll say in the earlier years, it, it's like a, it's like a game show of guessing what's happening and offering insight. Mm -hmm. right? And you think you're doing oh. well when you get it right. Yeah. yeah. I, I know what's going on with you. That's <laughs> like, it's going to pay for your student loan or something, you know? And, <laughs> and the reality of it is, is I, I respect so much how you respond to that because it is about being more comfortable and not all about confidence. It's just, it's comfort, I think. And I feel like that's what you named or explained. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think there's something in there about being willing to be more authentic with my own mm -hmm. reactions and more honest about it. Yeah. You know, you're right. You caught me. I, I, I was feeling judgmental in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I, and not only did I feel it, which is one thing that's human. But I let that show on my face and it hurt you. And I'm sorry. Being able, wow. being able to stay with something like that and not put your ego on the line is so much more powerful than, than anything else. We can't eliminate our humanity when we check in at the beginning of a session. We, there's some trickery in it because we are led to believe, you know, we hold people's emotional lives in our hands. And there's some grandiosity in that perspective. And yet, you know, we are so much more vulnerable than we pretend to be. And I think what you describe is that that crossover to authenticity when you're not afraid to make a mistake. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the thing that allows the opportunity for a corrective experience, I think. Absolutely. And a corrective countertransference, right? Because the countertransference we had earlier in our career looks different now. Yeah. And so it can feel more, I don't know, tolerable maybe is the word now since we've learned how to manage it better, hopefully. Yeah, tolerable. But also I think there's a lesson in there pretending it doesn't di that it didn't exist, pretending that it wasn't there didn't mean it wasn't there. It okay. was there and it was interfering all along. <laughs> and we're, we just had two choices. Like we could accept that it was there and deal with it. Or we could choose to pretend it wasn't there and we're still going to be dealing with it. Only it's going to make it I, much worse. I stand corrected. That's a better, much better way of 
of phrasing it because it was there all along. You were just denying it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. I appreciate that. So, you know, obviously you can see right away, I'm saying this to the audience that I really value your mind and how you think about things and just how it works. Um, So I want to get right into your new book, The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships and Hotter Sex. I mean, how can that title not grab anybody? You know, anybody in a couple should be curious about that. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. It's been a long, long coming effort. (laughs) And you have worked really hard to bring about something that's truly significant and important. So, you know, this reads like a, I want to begin with your afterward. Let me say that first. I want to begin with your afterward because that was like, well, damn now, Eric, what you doing up in here? I knew you would do that. And that is why I love you so much, because nobody else has touched it. I was like, Eric came correct, man. Like, it reads like a confessional of sorts. It is so personal. Many professionals would never consider going there. Can you explain your process and your willingness to do so? Yeah, let me say what's there, and then I'll explain the process and the willingness. So what's in there, the afterword is titled, I Am Flawed Too. So this is a book for men about consent, sexual entitlement, you know, the ways that we get twisted up around our own high desire, emotions, attempts to deliver our love. And I wrote the afterword to identify the errors that I have made in that process in my own life. My affairs, cheating on my wife, and how I hurt the affair partners that I had. The mistakes of misreading signals or processes, creating feelings of unsafety in my partner, even though I didn't want to. And my process of getting there was, frankly, I had a draft of the book at one point. This was probably a couple of years ago. And I just woke up one day and I was like, I can't do this and not be in integrity. I can't do this and put myself out there as if I know, as if I'm teaching without acknowledging my error, both because of the potential that somebody that I've hurt would be like, who is this guy putting himself out there? And I'm not just talking about that fear of like, getting me to or something like that. I'm talking about that would feel wrong. Like that would feel like harming that person again. That would feel like I didn't learn my lesson from, mm-hmm. from the hurt in the first place. So when I originally put it into the book, it was actually chapter two. And then there was one iteration where it came back out and we were considering making it separate press materials. And at one point I just decided it has to be in there. It has, it can't be somewhere else. It can't be where a reader would have to bump into it. It has to be integrated into this message. This is the only way for me to be in integrity with this process. That makes a lot of sense to me. Also, I could imagine a reader bumping into that in the middle and thinking this is going to be a sterile handbook and then being like, wait, what? <laughs> I was in doubt. I thought I was getting just an academic handbook. What happened here? I, I hope that a reader, long before the middle, encounters that it's not an academic handbook. I mean, I, I do say early on that I kind of point to the afterward to let the reader know that yes, that material's there. And the focus at the beginning is connecting to the reader's pain. The reader's pain at 
experiencing the cutoff from their own heart, from their own desire, from being shamed about what they do desire, about being told what they are or aren't or should or shouldn't be. And so we kind of moved it later in order to center the reader and the reader's pain at the beginning. You know, there's such a depth to the work that you've had to do over the years to get to where you are in, in writing this book. You know, you can feel you all in and out of this process, your respect for, you know, consent and and sexual desires and, you know, really affirming. And there is nothing wrong with what you desire in a sense, you know, as long as you understand. Right. Right? F fantasies. Thoughts, the things that attract you externally, none of that is flawed. It's random. You didn't choose it. It arose in your psychosexual development. Some of those things that turn you on that are fantasies, you probably don't want to do. You, <clears throat> you know, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I actually want done to me. But there's a story in there about what would free you into your eroticism, whether it's having somebody else take control or being able to take control in a way that the fantasy, I mean, it doesn't translate to reality. It is a separate place. It is a separate aspect of our existence. And yet we can create so much shame for ourselves about the content of our minds without focusing on our behavior and the impact of our being. That's where we need to keep more of our attention. That's very deep. Now, I'm going to sidestep a little bit yeah. to when does it become, I hate the word problem, but an interference in your life, say, you know, the, the label of porn addiction. You know, when does this fantasy become a barrier to something else? So, in the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, we talk not about sex addiction, but we talk about out-of-control sexual behavior, behavior that feels out of control for the individual. And I'll tell you, there's a two-part recipe to it. One is shame, and the other is not dealing with it. <laughs> and what happens in the process of shame is that people try to cut off even more parts of their sexuality. They try to make relationship agreements that aren't sustainable. They try to become someone that they're not. And in that process, they end up putting themselves, pitting themselves against themselves. Their sexual side that desires expression, that desires pleasure, tries to overwhelm them and they do things that are outside of their values and that feel out of control. And so that's the term that we use for things that are colloquially called sex addiction because it feels to the client coming in out of control. Right. But the thing I see in my practice when I deal with clients who come in with a feeling out of control is that their behavior could be all across the spectrum. One person comes in ashamed of solo private behavior that they do in the privacy of their own home once every two weeks that's perfectly physically and medically safe. And they feel incredible shame about it. And somebody else comes in and they're doing that same behavior seven times a day <laughs> and they don't have any shame about it and there's no problem. I appreciate it. That's good stuff. You know, I, I, before I get into the next yeah. question, I want to say, 
I just have never, in all my years, over probably 30 years now, met a, a psychologist who's just so relatable and so authentic. It's just so refreshing. You know, it's like no question is too far for you. And you have a way of personalizing it in a way that just feels so validating to the listener. So I just want to share that. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that comes through. That's how, that's what I intend. It is. Generally speaking, this is a stereotype and I'm just saying (laughs) my just pet female friends consistently say that it's so difficult for men to engage in communication around what pleases their partners, which by the way, would ultimately please them more. How do you respond to that? So there is an openness of communication that we don't know how to have. We have a lot of difficulty being honest about our internal desire. We have a lot of difficulty trying to fulfill the image, for example, of what we think a man ought to be, what he ought to desire, what he ought to be able to do for his partner. And when we put all of those ideas in front of, or as the mask on top of what we really desire, how we really feel, and how we really show up in the world, we create this incredible gap between our real authentic selves and our partners. And so it's so important that we do our internal work to prepare for that authenticity, to remove our own shame around it before we can even begin sharing it with somebody else. Now that's good. That's good. And so what is what do you see as the partner's part, the the woman's part in this example? to facilitate that process. Is there a part for that female to play? So I think there's no reason we need to even keep it inside of a heterosexual relationship, right? If if you are with a male partner and he's having a hard time showing up for you, receiving your desire, telling you what he really desires, one of the most important things that you can do is bring a non-judgmental openness. And if you can hear, you know, this is something that I'm interested in. This is a fantasy that I have. And remember, okay, so that's a fantasy. That doesn't mean I have to do that. That doesn't even mean my partner wants to do that with me. But there might be some ways we can play with that fantasy. We might be able to use words from that fantasy. We might be able to pretend out some parts of that fantasy if that's something that works for me. Now we get to be in the creative space of how do we work with what's coming out instead of just going, Ooh, I don't know about that. That I don't, I don't want to do that that way. Okay. Well, nobody said you had to. You were asking about what turns your partner on. Can you just listen? That is what turns your partner on. Now, what do you want to do with it? So to my cis, cis het female friends. Yeah. Should they bring this conversation up to their they male partner? They certainly can. I, you know, I don't know that there's reason for them not to. Fear. <laughs> we, yeah, well, there are a lot of good things on the other side of a lot of fear. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Excellent. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Appreciate that clarity. Okay, so what do performance, demand, romantic myths, 
and destructive ma- masculinity, aka toxicity, have to do with identifying as a man? Okay. So if you're a person who identifies as a man, let's start with performance demand. One of the things that will often get put onto you, even if you don't feel that way, is this idea, this projection that men are, the ideal man is competent, confident. He knows how to give pleasure to his partners without asking. Um, he just can be, you know, in tune. He's supposed to have all of this knowledge already. And nobody can live up to that performance demand myth. Number one, because every partner is different. Every partner needs to be touched differently. Every partner needs to be spoken to differently. Every partner needs to be related to differently. And so there isn't a manual somewhere, touch this, push that button, you know, swirl that <laughs> lever and have it work. You've, you've got to be in tune with and be comfortable with being in the learning position. So um, performance demand is one of the things that gets put on us, even in queer spaces, that, that the a masculine ideal includes all of these things. I'm trying to remember, before we get to destructive okay. masculinity, do you ask for something else after performance yeah, demand? I did. Let's see. Romantic myths. Romantic myths. So, you know, this is the other side of the coin, I think. It's both something that our partners, I think, with a certain degree of commonality, female partners in particular, steeped in romantic myths, will put on us, but we can also put it on ourselves. Things like, when we love each other, relationships are work. Things like, if we love each other, the sex is easy. If we love each other, then the sex is easy, and we orgasm together at the same time simultaneously, <laughs> and butterflies and rainbows, and everything's wonderful. <clears throat> the reality is, especially in long-term relationships, that there is an ebb and a flow to the sexual intensity, an ebb and a flow to the emotional connection. And we need to work with that and work to bring about the next point of flow. We need to put that effort in. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, your partner, or your relationship. It's just the normal thing that happens. And so it's really important that we remember love can be there and we still need to do work. Love can be there and I can still be hurt. Love can be in my heart and I can still hurt you intention unintentionally. And we need to work with that pain and open our hearts in order to be present to it in order to in order to move through it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a number of different ways of talking about this. And I will tell you, I almost left the term toxic masculinity out of my book. Yeah. I can tell so many men are triggered by it. It, you know, I know you are, and there's a reason I left it in. So uh, Mark Green talks about the, the man box. Ed Fraunheim and Ed Adams talk about constrained masculinity. What those terms refer to is the small definition of what a man is allowed to be. And the experience we have and the fear that we have that if we deviate from that narrow two-dimensional idea that we will get labeled not man enough, gay, you know, slurs that almost always uh, refer to women um, in some way, that there's this feminine thing that gets put on us. I chose to use destructive masculinity and toxic masculinity in my book for a very conscious reason. 
If you look at men's epidemic of isolation, loneliness, and our suicide rates, the poison of that two-dimensional idea about what it means to be a man is in our bones. It is inside of us, and it is hurting us. It's like it is toxic. It is inside of us, and it is seeping out of us sometimes. And we need to do a, a process of trying to cleanse that, of attending to it, of recognizing it's in there. Because if we don't, then it becomes destructive. It hurts us and it hurts our communities and our partners. It's difficult for me not to align this with, you know, internalized racism. You know, this idea that the more you deny it and act like it's not a part of your culture, the more you are liable to slip on the slippery slope and and lean into it more. And so this is what's coming up for me as you're saying that. Yeah, I mean, I really think that there's a deep and powerful intersection between racism, patriarchy, capitalism that's unchecked, and imperialism. And I really, you know, chose in my book to focus on one of those lenses as it resides inside of the bodies of men, as it hurts us as boys and traumatizes us, and as it turns us into the enforcers of patriarchy and racism and capitalism and imperialism. And I, I just want to not let the birthing body out of this mm -hmm. scenario. Yeah. You know, the female identified or... Yeah birthing body. I, I want to ha help them have some ownership of this, you know, toxicity that they always want to throw at men and patriarchy and just have them recognize that you're a part of that as well. You created this and in some way you nurtured it. And then when it becomes this thing, you don't want to take any ownership of it. I, I think that there's a little bit of a vulnerability inside of especially white feminist circles, for example, that they want a seat at the table, but they don't want to dismantle the table and the structures that created it. They don't want to dismantle the structures of oppression. And I think that one of the things I hope I can do for the men who read my book and their partners is to help create an understanding we are also oppressed by this system. And there is a liberation to be had for us as well. And that includes members of our communities beginning to treat us with more gentleness and more kindness, mm -hmm. just as we have rightfully been demanded that we begin treating the members of our community with more gentleness and kindness. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go next. This idea that, you know, the systems of white supremacy hurt white bodies as yes. well. Yes. You know, Rez Dominican is big on that. You know, it's like recognizing that it hurts you as well is what you're talking about here. And it's so important to understand it's a loss for, for men and when they subscribe to patriarchal culture as well. Yes. I think that's a really important emphasis. And you don't have to subscribe to it. I mean, the most common thing, you know, my, psychotherapy practices centered in the Bay Area, when I reveal to a man in how in his relationships, sometimes even in his gay relationship, mm -hmm. how he's exhibiting um, elements of sexual entitlement, trying to take autonomy over his partner, not listening to consent, creating emotional pressure, 
they are almost to a person horrified to observe yeah. that in themselves. They don't consciously want that. Mm -hmm. But it's one thing to have that head knowledge and that head value that you align with. And it's another thing to get to the root of how that got put into you and why it's now coming out of you. Mm -hmm. One of the barriers is that you continue to benefit from it externally while it's, you know, causing this destruction internally. You know, that's a different, difficult dichotomy to, to recognize. It really is. And I think that that's one of the ways, for example, that men being emotionally cut off serves us in the business world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that I love about the fact that my work has brought me to the place where that begins breaking down. Because I've had people with wealth by any standard in my office who are losing the most important relationships in their life because of their lack of emotional connection. So all of that privilege doesn't stack up to the thing you really want. And that's where it begins to break down. I'm going to leave that right there because that was perfection. And I'm going to dip to another uh, layer. So you said that this book is extremely important post Me Too, uh, the movement. But you started this before that. And so, what you know what I mean? Like your own journey oh, was yeah. in full swing before before uh, yeah. Me Too became a movement. And so, you know, what, what was the catalyst? I know you've, you've talked about it a little bit, but what was the catalyst? What was the moment where you were like, I got to, I got to do this. I have to make this happen. So, I mean, some of the journeys personally for me were reckoning with my own polyamorous identity. Being in my relationship with my wife, we're still together, 23 years of marriage. We're still close. We're still, we're thriving again. But I had cheated a couple of times, 12 years apart. I tried to lock that down. You know, I tried to make myself fit in the monogamous box. I encountered polyamory maybe midway through the, the 12 years between affairs. And I was like, oh, I, I, oh, I think that's me. I, I think, <laughs> I think that's why what happened before happened. And, you know, to her credit, my wife's response was, yeah, I think you are, but I'm not ready to deal with that right now. Okay. And so I was just trying to, you know, continue fitting the box, waiting for a more opportune moment. And I got into a situation where I didn't have any water left in my bucket. I was going through a massive career upheaval. We were not doing well financially. And this, you know, opportunity for infidelity, you know, came into my awareness and there was light in there for me past my ethical boundary. And there was this flood um, gate that broke and I realized I had to move into being in greater integrity with my nature. The seeds of that have been building in my practice. The lived lesson of that has been a lot of what I've been bringing to men. The catalyst that turned it into the seeds of a book was, was it during the Me Too hashtag process. Predators getting held accountable was, was one thing, but there was a particular story that came out. Listeners may remember the Aziz Ansari story. 
And when that story came out, I was like, yeah, that's what I see in my office. People who know better, but aren't doing better. Yeah, you talked about that in your book. Yeah. Say more about that. What, what, what that looked like for you. So, you know, I had been seeing in my practice, okay, you know, I've got a way of working with this. I've got a way of working with the consent problems that men have, not at the predatory level, but at the unconscious level, at the, I don't know how to manage my desire and love my partner and go through a process of consent. I don't know what to do with my feelings of rejection. I don't know how to get a no. I know not to keep pushing, but I don't know how to not mope for days afterwards. Um, and that creates emotional pressure where your partner feels like they have to take care of your emotions for you. And that means giving you access to their body that they may not be ready for because mopey is not sexy. <laughs> That's good. And so what that I really- needs to be a t-shirt, Eric, that needs to be a t-shirt from the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. So I realized like, I, I'm working with men at different developmental stages along this way, recognizing our pain and not being able to deliver love and desire the way we want, regulating our emotions so that we not, can not only just have the verbal consent conversations, but so that we can tolerate the consent conversations and being oh, self-aware as sexual beings enough that we know what we need to ask for in order to create the vitality and energy in our relationship that really will be satisfying so that we can create relationship agreements that are sustainable. I'm thinking now, because you've brought so much to the table already. Do you mind if we do this in two parts? Is that okay? Two parts, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to, you know, briefly say how amazing I think you are and how excited I am to have you here. And I'm so happy we're having this conversation on air and other people get to have access to it because you and I always have amazing conversations that build into and inform what we do for a living. And I, I have much gratitude for that. So I'm going to sign off here okay. and I'm going to come back. Okay. And we're going to start again for part two. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. 